Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Citing Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Finland has taken the extraordinary step of formally requesting membership in NATO, a move that is expected to be mirrored by Sweden, another nation that has long prized its security autonomy. Russia has again vowed unspecific retaliation, whether against the alliance, Finland, or in Ukraine is unclear. Russia's war in Ukraine grinds on with Moscow gaining ground in the east and Kyiv clawing back territory near Kharkiv as videos lay bare the barbarity of Russian forces uh, against innocent civilians. CNN did excellent reporting linking the use of cluster bombs against civilians to a specific Russian general officer, Colonel General Alexander Zhuravlyov, uh, the commander of Russia's Western Military District, who used similar tactics against civilians in Syria. This as Congress approved $40 billion in assistance for Ukraine, $7 billion more than the administration requested. ASEAN leaders met in Washington this week as tensions continue to rise in Israel, where three Israelis were killed by Palestinians and one Palestinian reporter was accidentally killed by Israeli troops. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Dr. Kathleen McGinnis of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where she also leads uh, the Smart Women, Smart Power series, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts CSIS among his many affiliations. Uh, everybody, thanks very much uh, for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week. And tune in to The Downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks so much again for joining us. Kathleen, a very special thanks for uh, uh, joining us and congratulations on uh, the new uh, assignment. Uh, thank you so much. It's a delight to be here this morning with you. Uh, an absolute pleasure. And at the very end, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what you're trying to do with uh, smart, smart women and, and smart power. Certainly an important conversation and an important time. Um, Dove, uh, let me start off with you. Uh, Michael Herson, uh, our normal congressional commentator, uh, is, is unable to join us today. Where are we just broadly on budget news, uh, you know, whether coming off the Hill or anywhere else in, in Washington? What have you picked up in the last week? The big story, of course, is the 40 billion uh, for Ukraine. And there are really two parts to that story. Uh, there's six billion for intel and equipment and training and four billion for financing to help Kiev keep going. And there's the humanitarian aid. People, by the way, are thinking that to really restore Ukraine to anything like what it was, is going to cost at least a half trillion dollars. God only knows where that money will come from. But the other big story is Rand Paul, who um, uh, once again uh, is standing in the way of, of what you might call progress. Uh, and uh, he's holding this thing up. And he's, he's, of course, given an explanation about why he he feels that that should be the case. Uh he can't, he can't, his argument is, and I'm quoting here, he said, we can't save Ukraine by dooming the American economy. Well, I don't think we're going to doom the American economy, uh, but uh, evidently he does. And so that's holding things up. And one of the biggest problems with something like that, quite honestly, is that once again, just as the United States is, is working to restore its international credibility, 
something like this comes up and and it hurts and and perhaps under normal circumstances 10 years ago nobody would have batted an eyelash they would have said of course it's going to pass but right now uh it doesn't look very good and especially uh as uh, you mentioned with finland coming in and sweden probably coming in uh to nato uh, this is just not the right time for this kind of holdup. uh it it really is uh astonishing and um uh, again, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of the horrible signal that it sends uh, internationally. Um, Kathleen, uh, thanks again for uh, joining us. And I should remind the audience that you worked with uh, the illustrious uh, Jim Townsend. Uh, Finland uh, obviously has formally requested uh, NATO membership, and it appears to pass Lord Robertson's former uh, NATO Secretary General Lord Robertson's test of whether a potential partner actually increases or diminishes alliance uh, security. I should also point out Britain has struck uh, bilateral security agreements uh, with both uh, Finland and Sweden, um, even even if there was a little bit of skepticism coming out of some in Paris as, as to the motives motives of that. What does what does Finland bring to the table, uh, Kathleen? And will Hungary prove to be the spoiler there as it did in blocking the EU from uh, halting all Russian energy imports uh, into the community? Well, I think the the general consensus is that Finland brings a lot to the table. Uh, it is a very capable military. It's a it's a well established and healthy democracy. All of the, the the NATO accession criteria have been met and beyond by Finland. Taking a step back, uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, Finnish public opinion for joining NATO was hovering at around twenty to thirty percent, and today that's at seventy six percent. That's extraordinary. Um, and so it really does signal this, this, this rapid geopolitical shift at what's happening across Europe and with um, respect to, to Finnish accession. So um, in terms of Hungary being a spoiler, um, there is obvious concern about that. There has been for a while. Um, uh, Orban, in, Hungary's Orban is sympathetic to Moscow and its intentions. Um, but also uh, watch the story closely because Turkey has also indicated that it is not necessarily in favor of Finnish and Swedish accession to NATO. So it does seem like the diplomatic road to traverse um, to, to get Sweden and Finland into NATO may be a little bit more difficult than initially envisaged. Can I jump in here on this one, uh, uh, Vago? Yeah, of course. Go ahead. A couple of things. Uh, First, uh, we shouldn't assume, I totally agree with Kathleen. Uh, this is not a, a, a done deal. Uh, and I think that is partly why uh, Boris Johnson went ahead and, and sort of reached these agreements with, uh, with Finland and Sweden so that uh, sort of uh, as a bridge uh, for uh, whenever they will finally get in, because the real question would be if they, you know, if it takes much more time, they want it real fast, obviously. If it takes more time, it gives Putin more leverage. Uh, but I don't know that that Sweden is necessarily going to jump uh, just because Finland did. Everybody assumes that. But uh, there's nothing like the same degree of, of support, public support in Sweden as there is in Finland. And that has been the case for quite some time, number one. Number two is remember, just because you're surrounded by uh, uh, by countries that are part of an alliance doesn't mean you're necessarily going to go in. I mean, leaving aside the fact they've been neutral for a couple of hundred years, uh, Switzerland was surrounded by everybody at war in World War II 
and World War I and, and remain neutral. So in theory, at least, uh, they could decide to become neutral, uh, to stay neutral, rather, or non-aligned, as they call it. Uh, I wouldn't bet the family farm that'll happen, but one shouldn't rule it out entirely. Um, I would be uh, interested um, to see how the debate unfolds, although um, uh, Carl Bildt, I think, is right. The notion of Swedish neutrality ended when uh, Sweden entered the European Union. Uh, and its Article 42 clause is as strong in some respects, and some would argue even stronger than Article 5, uh, which, which um, with NATO's Article 5. Uh, and, you know, Finland and Sweden are both EU nations uh, as well. So, I mean, they do fall under that, even if the European Union itself does not have uh, the um, organized military capacity uh, clearly that the, the NATO alliance uh, has. Yeah, except um, that except opponents can stand it on its head and say, well, you see, we're already committed. Why should we join NATO with all the complications with Moscow that we'll have since we already have this? I'm not saying it's necessarily going to be the case. I'd say the odds of them coming in are, are pretty good. But just right. don't get shocked if it doesn't happen. As well. uh, no, and, and, and we have seen the security debate evolve, right? I mean, it was running you know, under 50%. Now it's gone a little bit over 50%. And if you're, you know, on the other side of the Baltic, it's very different than sharing 800 miles of border, more than 800 miles of border as, as, as Finland uh, does. Uh, Kathleen, did you have something you wanted to add? Well, I just wanted to emphasize that the, you know, the uh, Finland and Sweden have have basically been, you know, if, if not formal NATO allies, pretty pretty close. They've been operating with NATO in uh, contingency operations. They were with us in Afghanistan. Um, there's strong partnership agreements. As you mentioned, there is the EU uh, mutual defense clause that they fall under. So there are multiple layers of um, strategic mutual security defense um, cooperation and, um, and operational cooperation as well. So yeah, I mean, I, I think Davis Act is completely right. I mean, at the end of the day, if this stalls, it may be, you know, worth what, questioning whether or not, you know, what do they, what is accession to NATO actually get them when they're already doing so much with NATO anyway? Um, uh, it does seem like uh, on balance right now, they they both governments are are thinking that the the rewards of NATO membership are are worth incurring risks. But uh, again, we'll see. Uh, and uh, Sweden obviously has stepped up its game with NATO uh, and the United States with a tripartite agreement uh, among the United States, Finland, uh, and Sweden that Jim Mattis uh, signed a few years ago in Washington. Uh, and Sweden certainly been uh, putting staff officers uh, in Helsinki, Finnish staff officers, uh, and in other parts uh, of the of the Baltic region as well, uh, yeah, in order in order to sort of shore up that interoperability uh, side of the equation. Absolutely. And the other thing that I've been watching with, with great interest is these um, mini lateral coalitions that are developing. So, uh, you know, there's there's always been concern that NATO's decision making is going to be slower because you have to take decisions at 30 than um, the speed of war would permit. And so um, these multilateral groupings like the Joint Expeditionary Force that's led by Britain um, and is, is, a, is a really interesting way to begin solving that problem because those minilateral coalitions can act more quickly than NATO might, might do so. And in fact, that's how NATO has been doing its operations um, for quite some time. There's oh, there, With Libya, there's a small group and then NATO falls on afterwards. So again, very interesting to watch uh, this kind of development up in uh, 
in NATO's high north. Um, let me um, uh, shift gears, uh, uh, Dove, really quickly. And Patrick, thanks for your patience. And I'm going to bring you into this in a, in a, in a second. Dove, um, Hungary has served that two questions, right? I mean, how do the Russians respond to this, right? I mean, there's always a lot of saber rattling. Uh, and pretty much, I think we've concluded that every part of this war has worked um, against what Putin has said he wants, unless what he wants is to be further isolated and use that as a vehicle in order to, to increase uh, his likelihood of staying in power, right? Um, you, you can also look at it that way. He's, he's not stupid. He's a very rational actor. He knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, his expectation was he was going to get away with it again, as he's gotten away with it every other time. Um, how did the Russians respond to this? Because um, I think it's abundantly clear he doesn't have all that much bandwidth to respond to anybody else in the alliance with his hands full uh, in Ukraine right now. And how does the alliance in the EU have to handle Hungary? Because as much as 29 of the nations may want Finland as part of the alliance or Sweden as part of the alliance, it's a, it has to be a unanimous vote. And Hungary uh, can flunk both of them. And as we've seen, Orban pretty much is Putin's guy. And he's been paid for by Putin in part, right? Uh, at least if you believe news reports. Um, and, you know, always likes to stick it both to the alliance as well as to the EU. Well, he's actually been much more careful. I mean, he, he has formally at least gone along with the sanctions, uh, even if he's broken them. But if, uh, at least formally, he's gone along with them. But you got to remember, he's not the only one in this. Uh, he he might be the, the, the running interference for the Turks and the Greeks, who uh, also might not want uh, Sweden and Finland in for different reasons. Uh, the, the Turks... Uh, have always bristled at the fact that the Swedes are lecturing them about morality and about their journey, they're putting journalists in jail and all this sort of thing. Uh, and the Greeks don't forget that uh, it was the Nordic states in the EU that weren't exactly ready to bail them out when they had economic troubles. So uh, it may well be that Orban's not alone in this. And uh and that brings the whole question of what does the EU do about it? If he was the only guy, if he was the only country, then, yeah, uh, the EU might do something. Uh, they're already doing something to Poland and, and the Poles have been pushing back. And that's another problem, because when you get to the EU's pressure on, on Hungary, it's not just Hungary, it's Poland. And right now, nobody's going to mess with Poland. So in that respect, he can actually hide behind Poland. So I don't know that he's really going to get hit in any way by by his stance. Uh, and he could hold the, the works up for a while. Uh, as far as the Russian reaction to uh, the Finns coming in, I mean, you're right. There, there's nothing much they're going to they're not going to invade like 1939. On the other hand, uh, they could uh, give the Finns the willies by building up even more in the Lenin, Lenin St. Petersburg military district. Uh, and uh, just simply giving them grief, uh, maybe via the, the uh, you know, jamming them in some ways, uh, you know, virtual grief, as it were. Uh, there are things they could do to make life uh, not impossible for Finland, but not very pleasant. Um, Patrick, uh, let me, uh, uh, Kathleen, do you want to have any, just anything you want to add to, to that uh, before I bring uh, Patrick into the discussion? Because I want to get you know, his sense on sort of where we are and, and where we're going. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, just quickly to add, you know, one of the things that I am watching is, you know, the preparations for the NATO summit in Madrid in June. And, you know, the extent to which NATO is going to reckon with this, this new strategic reality of, of Russia being a, a clear and obvious threat to the alliance and its integrity. Um, so a lot of interesting things are going to be developing. Again, does Hungary play the spoiler in there? It, it's, it's, there's just a lot of questions right now. Uh, it's interesting times for sure. Uh, that's uh, that's a uh, you know said with uh, a lot of understatement, um, Patrick. Uh, we're, you know one of the things we heard uh, from uh, Barry Pavel, uh, who joined us uh, of the Atlantic Council, who joined us yesterday, was you know Putin. You know what Putin loves are frozen conflicts, um, and his calculation is that he can outlast uh, the alliance. Um, he can sort of grind this out. Uh, the story starts to slide from headlines. Rand Paul succeed in holding up aid. Hungary delays uh, Finland uh, from being able to join formally. Uh, and, and Putin smirks his way gradually to victory. Um, you know, what's your sense on where we are on the conflict, whether or not it's starting to resemble a, a frozen conflict? The Russians are doing a little bit of a better job trying to take out some of the rail lines and other ways that we're helping get equipment into uh, Ukraine, which is one of the reasons why Ukrainians keep warning, like, this is not one, we're, we're still engaged in uh, the fight of our uh, lives. Where, where are we now? Are we heading toward a frozen conflict from, from your standpoint? Well, I don't think Putin went from little green men to hypersonic missiles and invading Ukraine with the idea that he would settle for a frozen conflict. But yes, that's maybe the outcome, um, because nobody knows how to win this war. Um, the administration's been very good about talking about Russia's already failed, uh, and they have. I mean, Putin has failed in his basic objective to take over Kiev uh, and, to, and to rule Ukraine. Um, but this war will go on. Nobody knows how to win it. Um, and uh, meanwhile, the U.S. is very much focused on China and Asia and trying to make sure that we can work in both theaters, uh, both Europe and Asia at the same time. Um, I think, you know, Putin is, uh, you know, we know not to underestimate Putin. Um, we know that he can be unpredictable, but at the same time, he has been stymied by the Ukrainians. The arms are pouring in now. Um, President Biden was feeling secure enough about Ukraine to send his wife uh, to Ukraine. Um, that has to tell Putin that he has indeed not met his objectives. And of course, there are talks about uh, Putin's succession um, talks about the military unrest uh, in Russia, talk about economic uh, and oligarchic uh, you know, pressure on Putin. All of these are uh, perhaps part propaganda, part reality, um, but, but Putin is not succeeding in his basic goals. And yet, I think Barry Pavel's basic point is that you know, this is the long haul too. Uh, and the long haul, we go from stage to stage uh, and that brings into questions about the future of NATO's configuration. And, and those are long-term decisions not made overnight. Um, talk about the future border between NATO and Russia. Talk about future nuclear stability. Um, and ultimately talk about what happens after Putin and when does that eventually happen? Uh, because it may not happen for a long time still, or it could happen quickly. Um, and meanwhile, other countries around the world, like India, are well beyond uh, worried about Ukraine and thinking very much about uh, their own future uh, and quite separate from this, this ongoing conflict. So if it is a frozen conflict, we have to make it sustainable. We have to support uh, the Ukrainians in, uh, and our NATO allies uh, in particular to make sure that they protect their interests and that we 
don't let this aggression win uh, now or or five years from now. And if um, I could just jump in, can, yeah, if I could ahead, just jump in real quick, um, I because Patrick's exactly right. We need to be looking or thinking about the long game here. And one other dimension that I just wanted to underscore was preparing our publics for the long-term implications of this conflict. And um, because if it does drag on, there's you know our publics are going to feel the pinch. It's actually oddly gets back to Rand Paul's um, interesting point uh, that's holding up the Ukraine funding um, and maybe a little bit mis misplaced, but the sentiment is there that, that um, this is going to affect our economies. And so we need to think strategically about how we're going to prepare our publics for, for these eventualities. Uh, and I, I would just add, Vago, uh, on, on top of that, uh, remember, it's not going to be so easy to prepare the publics. We just got out of Afghanistan. Uh, we have inflation that, you know, maybe it's slightly tailing off, but every time somebody passes a, a gas station, they can see the $5 uh, per gallon. And I was just in California where it's $7 per gallon. Uh, and so, you know, big bucks that'll keep on going to Ukraine will be could become an election issue in 2024. And uh, I could see at least one individual who will make a big fuss about it. And his name's Donald Trump just on the size of the package, um, between 2002 or FY20, uh, 2002 and uh, FY2021, the U.S. spent $82.9 billion on the Afghan Security Forces Fund. And we're talking about $40 billion, half that in a very rapid time for Ukraine. So again, uh, just to put it into context, the numbers that we're talking about and how this could become an election issue. It is, however, and I do think the president has done a good job on this uh, and certainly would like to get your guys take on it. But I think he's done an extraordinary job saying, look, I mean, this is and his whole team has been making the argument. And indeed, anybody who supports, which is the vast majority of everybody in Washington, uh, although we all know, um, you know, there are a lot of a larger number than people would like to admit um, who think that we shouldn't be doing any of this and that we should be engaging Russia and Ukraine doesn't matter. Uh, it, this is very much about the rules-based order. The reason we created this from the ashes of World War II was for this exact thing not to happen again. And it is happening uh, again uh, in a scale and in a barbarity. Uh, I mean, honestly, watching the Russians fire, uh, you know, their barrages looks no different than, you know, Katyusha barrages in World War II. Uh, in, in terms of uh, the rocket artillery uh, and, and other means. Um, uh, let me ask you, you know, and Patrick, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago that you pointed out, right, it's, it's actually fortunate we're not now in Afghanistan because it does free up a lot of bandwidth for us to devote to this, uh, uh, this particular uh, challenge. How did the Ukraine war surface and make its mark in the ASEAN meetings uh, in Washington? This week, right? It's not often that you're greeted with a motorcade uh, with, um, you know, a Cambodian flag flying from its front left fender. Right. I mean, you have uh, eight of the 10 leaders of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, uh, at the White House for the first time ever. Uh, Philippines have just elected new president, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Um, he's sent his foreign minister. And Myanmar was disinvited because of the, uh, the, the junta. Uh, and its uh, brutality right now with its civil war. Um, but this is still an unprecedented opportunity for the United States to forge ahead, not just with ASEAN as an organization, um, but really with the individual uh, Southeast Asian nation leaders and to give them 
um, you know, the FaceTime with the president in the White House, um, something they've never had before, uh, is is really how the administration's approaching this. So uh, Kurt Campbell and other senior officials preparing the president for this summit uh, was all about uh, saying, look, you have access. Um, you understand our politics now. Um, you have our phone numbers. <laughs> uh, and we're going to we're going to make this relationship work for you. Uh, and we really care. This is not an episodic uh, sort of one-off relationship. This is not a transactional or unidimensional relationship. But in the meantime, your question about Ukraine is that, yeah, the president's going to tell them what our goals are in Ukraine, and it'll be very much what he has said in public. Um, and meanwhile, he's going to let his intelligence uh, community speak out, which is what they've been doing all week. So if you've been watching the news about, for instance, Bill Burns's remarks saying, uh, look, there's no way the Ukraine war is going to erode Xi's determination to get control of Taiwan. Avril Haines, uh, the DNI, uh, testifying before the Senate Armed Services Committee this weekend, said the same this week, said the same thing, essentially, that um, the forced, you know, uh, forcing unification on Xi's terms is still China's main aim. Um, and so you're not going to hear a lot of that discussed probably in the White House with these leaders, but you're going to have that as the backdrop for the intelligence so that they understand we know, they know that as Russia can invade a neighbor in Ukraine, China with its big power, if it's unfettered, if it's unchecked, if it's unbalanced, it could do not just this to Taiwan, but it could do this to the South China Sea and to Southeast Asia. And that's why you see big countries like Indonesia suddenly moving to uh, secure the Natuna Islands with a new uh, uh, special economic zone uh, with backed by maritime security. It'll be reinforced by a bilateral uh, Garuda shield uh, exercise that uh, the army does with the Indonesians this year. Um, Thailand, we had the first joint strategic uh, and defense dialogue between our two countries here just leading up to this summit. Um, that's kind of building back after the 2014 coup that happened in Thailand with our ally uh, in Vietnam, we had the, the prime minister here has uh, spoken out about the growing relationship between the U.S. and Vietnam. And although uh, Marcos didn't come to the White House, uh, the reality is that the expectation is that we're going to continue our security and defense ties with the Philippines, despite the populist politics that come in and out of Manila. So all of these are very good signs that the United States is poised to strengthen relations with, with Southeast Asian nations that we want to engage ASEAN. And by the way, and this is a point in foreign affairs by uh, Ambassador Bilhari Kausakan, the famous uh, sort of Singapore outspoken ambassador, um, who uh, says, look, ASEAN risks irrelevance if it doesn't keep strong ties with the United States, because it's the strong ties of the United States that gives ASEAN some leverage over China. So this is a very important relationship between ASEAN in the United States and between the Southeast Asian leaders in the United States. Um, I uh, couldn't, couldn't agree more uh, with that uh, assessment. And uh, Patrick, give us uh, kind of a quick update on North Korea, right? Uh, tensions uh, increasing. Uh, we heard that from the Japanese last week, and now an acknowledgement that they finally had a COVID case. I, I know that your commentary is going to go beyond that, but. Well, no, but COVID has been a mystery in North Korea. We've been wondering what effect does it have on North Korea? Now they are no longer concealing the fact that it is spreading. Um, that people are dying of COVID. Uh, and in fact, that the 25 April military parade was very likely a super spreader event uh, that has led Kim Jong-un himself to wear masks now for the first time uh, in sort of a public session. 
Um, and so it's not stopping the missile test. It's not going to stop. It may slow down when we see a seventh nuclear test. But the fact is, North Korea right now is in a COVID emergency because this is largely an unvaccinated population. Um, two questions, uh, Patrick, and then I uh, start with Patrick and then put it to the whole team. Um, American public sentiment is something like 70 something percent last time I checked in favor uh, of what the administration is doing, right in favor of supporting Ukraine and thinking that the administration is going doing a good job in that. And Ukraine now is the second, I think it's second to the economy in terms of topics that the American people are interested in. Uh, Patrick, start us off. How is the administration doing in its messaging more broadly to the American people? And how do you do it differently to make that case about why, I mean, in my view, this is part of strategic deterrence. There will be a price uh, to pay for standing up to Russia, just like there will be a price to pay for standing up to China. Both of those prices are a lot cheaper. Um, you know, whether if you add 100 billion or 200 billion or 500 billion to American defense spending, it will be a lot cheaper than any war that we're likely to fight within the span of 12, 10, 12 weeks. Um, half a trillion dollars in damage, at least, has been done to Ukraine that we can see. Right, 600 billion was the estimate, as Doug mentioned. Uh, right, is the administration doing as good of a job in making this broader? case. Uh, and I would love to then get Kathleen to bite this apple and, and then and then Dove. I think it's done a very good job, but um, American public is only so interested in sustaining thought and dialogue about any issue, uh, especially a, a war that's occurring uh, you know, overseas. Um, so the reality is that this gets left to the military and the professionals and the diplomats and the economists and, and other people who have to work uh, in the field and make these connections. But I think the fact that the White House has been consistently messaging the growing list of ways the United States government is supporting Ukraine, uh, and it's gone step by step to increase the military aid, the humanitarian aid. Uh, and I think that has been reflected in the fact that there's been broad support all along the way. And that's partly because the success of, of Zelensky in rallying the world uh, behind his cause, that this was naked aggression against Ukraine, and it must not stand. And I think, I think that basic principle will hold until or unless there's some major deviation or crisis from that perception. Kathleen? I agree with Patrick. I think the administration has done a laudable job of explaining the stakes and uh, why it's pursuing the strategy that it, that it is. Uh, but again, as these things go on, uh, publics tend to lose attention. And furthermore, you know, we've engaged in two major wars in, uh, since September 11th and a number of minor contingencies, relatively minor contingencies. And these wars haven't really affected the American public in, in really meaningful ways. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about that. Well, this, this is gonna pinch economically. That said, this is always a problem, right? There's, there's no, you know, when, when war starts to hit home, these, these are central challenges that every administration in, in these kinds of positions faces. So again, I, I agree with Patrick, they're doing a great job. It's just, this is a very, very tough situation to explain in the long term, And um, they're gonna have to factor that in now. Dove? Uh, Kathleen is right. Um, it, the issue is a matter of time. Uh, this is not going to be an issue in the congressional elections. It isn't up to now. Uh, and there is bipartisan support. But Washington is not the country. 
And as this drags on, uh, this could well be uh, a major issue, not so much because of Ukraine itself, but if inflation persists, prices remain high, uh, you can see where some candidates will exploit what we're doing for Ukraine and saying, you see, the, the Democrats are wasting money while ignoring inflation and making life miserable for Americans. And this is not, you know, 1941, when, if you remember, it wasn't until Pearl Harbor that Franklin Roosevelt was really able to pull the country behind them. Uh, he was doing all sorts of things like Lend-Lease, which Congress just passed. But the big bucks were not being spent uh, in any way like uh, they would be once the war began because we hadn't been attacked. So I think Kathleen is on to something and two years can be a very long time in politics. Um, I, uh, you know, as, as I've been making this case for a long time, um, you know, with his domestic agenda and Build Back Better stalling, the version of FDR that Joe Biden should be emulating is uh, the, the wartime leader that's focused on the national security elements of it. There you will be able to make progress, uh, both with uh, Democrats and, uh, and, and most Republicans, even if the Rand Pauls of the world uh, you know, are, are, are impeding uh, that uh, progress. Um, Dove, let me give you a second bite at this apple and then get everybody to quickly talk about the UK-Japan uh, uh, security agreement. You wrote about it uh, in The Hill uh, today, so I commend our audience to check out the new uh, Anglo-Japanese defense agreement is a message to Moscow and Beijing uh, and, and fully agreed. Uh, and I should point out that um, the United States Navy struck a tripartite agreement, I want to say about five years ago. Lung Aquilino was... Uh, uh, the N3, N5, as I recall then. He's now uh, Indo-Pacific commander. Uh, and that uh, agreement involved uh, the Royal Navy, the United States Navy, and the Japanese Navy uh, to uh, you know, deepen the strategic partnership among the three. Uh, Dove, uh, start us off why this agreement is so important. Well, uh, it, it brings Britain squarely uh, into East Asia. Britain is not part of the Quad. Uh, but, you know, uh, India will remain on the fence, I think. Uh, and uh, Britain already has a similar, uh, a, a, a Japan rather, has a similar agreement with Australia. But the fact that you now have a, a European power so firmly committed uh, to the same aims as the United States, Australia and Japan in East Asia is a very, very big deal. And, and yes, this is not the Britain of 1902. It's Britannia doesn't rule the waves anymore, but don't minimize Britain's power. And it just complicates calculations in Beijing, not just with respect to Taiwan, which seems to have been uh, the, the target in, in uh, East Asia that uh, the two prime ministers were talking about. And I'd point out, uh, I love Alungak was Lino, and he's a very capable four-star, but it's one thing when you reach an agreement at that level, and another thing when you have two prime ministers announcing an agreement. Uh, so this is quite significant. It's going to get China thinking twice, I think, about Taiwan, about East, uh, the East China Sea, and about the South China Sea. Uh, it reinforces what we're trying to do in a very, very visible and important way. 
Uh, and, and that agreement was uh, among the services specifically. I just had interviewed Long at the time uh, the uh, agreement came out because uh, obviously his and his British and Japanese counterparts were key in it, but completely understand that a head of state agreement is different. And uh, as our audience knows, Britain now has two seventy, uh, more than 70,000 ton aircraft carriers and Queen Elizabeth did an extraordinary deployment, um, an absolutely extraordinary deployment demonstrating the capabilities of the ship and uh, exercising very closely with... Um, you know, like 30 navies around the world as it went ahead and did this, including did cross-deck operations uh, with, the, with the Japanese. Uh, and an extraordinary scene there to see uh, the number of aircraft carriers together uh, in, in Asia as a, as, a, as a symbol. Patrick, let me get your take on the agreement and then, and then uh, Kathleen's. Go ahead. Well, Japan's been working on these reciprocal access agreements as part of an ability to uh, not just have interoperability, but interchangeability uh, with other like-minded uh, navies uh, and uh, in militaries. And they've done this with Australia now, the United Kingdom. Um, and I think this is something that um, the Chinese have taken close note of. That's one reason why the Chinese have uh, their intelligence ship off of the northwest coast of Australia right now, uh, listening to uh, communications, but they had the uh, same ship off uh, the northeast coast last year during Talisman Sabre exercise between the United States and Australia to make sure that they could pick up all of the signals and figure out how well is that interoperability going between the United States and its allies like Australia. Um, the fact that um, the United Kingdom is part of the AUKUS deal with Australia in, U in the UK, uh, in the United States, um, is something that is important to Japan because they want to cooperate with the AUKUS countries uh, as well as uh, use the Quad to bring the UK into some of the, uh, the work that they're doing along with France uh, and others. Um, so Europe matters even amid the Ukraine war we've been talking about. Europe is going to continue to matter in terms of East Asian security, which is why Prime Minister of Japan, Kishida, is talking about this indivisible security um, for Japan uh, security on both ends of Eurasia really does matter. Uh, Kathleen? Just to add the, the, the bigger point is the, you know, the UK has, is making these commitments and it's, it's, it really is a fascinating uh, development in Asia, but just like the United States and, you know, how there, there's, there's requirements in Europe that are significant. Does the UK have the force to be able to respond in both theaters? Uh, are we looking at a political move that could, you know, as the National Defense Strategy Commission put it in 2018, re referencing the US, it, do these commitments, uh, could they possibly lead to a situation of strategic insolvency where the a country is unable to meet the commitments that it's made because it just simply doesn't have the military capabilities to do so. Um, again, this it is a really fascinating development. I think that it is um, definitely worth paying attention to. But again, it gets with the broader context of European uh, defense capabilities and the aggression in Russia, the question of overstretch is going to be one that, that defense players need to look carefully at. Argo, can I just come in there? We, I, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, Kathleen makes a good point. Obviously, London's got to be concerned. Has Northern Ireland with, with Scotland, I mean, with, with its economy and Boris Johnson's future, all of that's very true. But um, the one thing that we must remember is that when you think about Britain bringing the dreadnought uh, Trident carrier uh, submarines online by 2030, uh, and that's moving ahead forward, uh, as well as the capability in cyberspace and in outer space, 
um, you can see how UK, France can play a big role in both regions, even with their own economic and political problems at home. Uh, I uh, agree that these nations can walk uh, and chew gum. Um, we, we didn't raise France's role. I know that we've talked about it a number of times on this program, but as we see agreements like this, um, you know, Patrick, let me put uh, this uh, to you. Does, does the Quad need to be the six and have France and, and Britain be part of it as well? Well, um, there's a reason why France and, and Japan are cooperating closely with Five Eyes countries on intelligence, because if you look at the capabilities that the Indo-Pacific Command is trying to bring into uh, the use for contingencies like potentially Taiwan, uh, they're trying to do three things, right? They're trying to see, uh, to blind, and, and to kill uh, an adversary, an aggressor. Um, and to see, you start with that sharing of a common operating picture. And that's where, yeah, France is part of that common operating picture. They're contributing to that through uh, adding to the Five Eyes Agreement. Um, when you think about the C5ISR uh, as well, to try to blind an adversary and aggressor, um, that's where France, UK, are going to be able to come in in the future with their own capabilities. Uh, and then if you're talking about the long-range precision strikes, well, that's really more the United States working uh, in the region, but it's backed up by uh, nuclear-powered allies like France and the UK. Um, any uh, thoughts, Kathleen uh, or Dove? Because Dove, I want to take uh, two minutes. Uh, it take uh, two minutes and get your take on uh, Israel and what's going on in the Middle East and whether or not Joe Biden is ever going to go uh, to uh, Saudi Arabia and then give Kathleen a, a minute or two to talk about her, her new program, even though she's going to join us for a deeper discussion on that. Any any last thoughts on on France, well, uh, Japan, etc.? Go ahead. I East in the Hill a couple uh, several months ago, arguing that France and and uh, uh, Britain should join the Quad. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, in effect, as Patrick just said, they're pretty much there already. I think if they formally joined, it would just be yet another signal to uh, to Beijing. And remember, France has two million French citizens in the their overseas departments, which are part of France. Uh, we tend to think about Guam and 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 over Pacific parts of America, we are not just a Pacific power because of California, we're a Pacific power because of Guam and the islands out there. And it's the same with France. And they should be part of the quad, uh, as should Britain. Uh, but until that happens, I think this web of, uh, of, of agreements and cooperation that Patrick just outlined is just getting stronger and stronger and it gets Beijing's attention. Kathleen, uh, last thought, uh, anything you want to add to that? I think uh, Patrick and Dove covered it pretty well. I, anything that gives Beijing more pause is probably a, a good thing. I think it's remarkable, again, given what's happening in uh, Europe, how much consensus there is on the need for these kinds of operations and agreements in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, so interesting thing to watch. Uh, in, in Indeed. Um, Dove, uh, really quick, unrest uh, in uh, Israel, uh, unsettling, Bibi Netanyahu in the wings, uh, hoping to be vaulted back into power. Uh, where are we? Uh, and let me also cue up the Saudi Arabia question. Pretty extraordinary snub. Uh, the president of the United States is supposed to have been going over there. And, uh, you know, my, my mother, uh, I am not the diplomat that my mother was, right? I think it's somewhat unconscionable because uh, clearly the United States wants to further the dialogue. The president's saying he wants to go. You know, the Lloyd Austin's visit was rejected. And now this 
uh, has been rejected. Um, you know, walk, walk us through what both of these storylines mean. Yes, there, there's a lot of news coming out of the Middle East. Uh, first of all, uh, Mr. Erdogan said on Friday, that's today, that uh, he doesn't support Sweden and Finland coming in because, and I'm quoting here, they are home to many terrorist organizations. So it isn't just Mr. Orban. Uh, this is going to be a problem. That's number one. Number two, the other story coming out of the Middle East is that the, the ruler uh, of, uh, of the uh, United Arab Emirates has passed away and his brother, no other than Mohammed bin Zayed, is now going to be the ruler of the Emirates. That's a very, very big deal because uh, Mohammed bin Zayed has been the voice of the Emirates anyway, but now he is the ruler. And that, that has a tremendous degree of significance uh, and not just in terms of protocol. Uh, the, the, the issues with Israel are, and Saudi Arabia are really pretty grave. The, the Saudi situation was, I don't recall the administration ever formally saying that Biden was going to go out there. Uh, but that was a very, very hot and heavy rumor. Uh, and clearly he's going to be out in Israel. And one would have thought that uh, the jump from Israel to Riyadh ain't that far. Uh, but he's not going to do that. And that's just going to exacerbate what's already a very, very prickly relationship. And if he wants Saudi Arabia to uh, produce more oil, he ain't going about it the right way. Um, Israel's got its own headaches. Uh, first of all, uh, the journalist Shireen Abu Nakhleh Palestinian American who was killed. You said uh, that the investigation, you know, seems to indicate the Israelis were behind it. It's much more complicated than that. The Israelis are saying we want to look at the bullet that killed her, and we'll be able to figure out whose gun fired it. The Palestinians are saying no way. You guys killed her, and it turns out that there was a firefight. She was 600 feet away from where the firefight was taking place, and we just don't know. So that's a mess. There have been demonstrations in Jerusalem over this when she was being uh, buried. There already is tremendous unrest on the West Bank and inside uh, Israel itself uh, because of uh, the Palestinians are, are, you know, those who've been killing Israelis and Israelis retaliating. And on top of all of that, even though the Bennett government, uh, this coalition government has survived uh, at least one no confidence vote and the Ram Arab party has, which left the coalition is now back in the coalition. Uh, it's still not clear whether these guys can survive. And if Mr. Netanyahu takes over, then the mess just gets worse. Dove, thank you uh, very much. And, uh, and uh, thanks uh, very much for the clarification and, and, and the greater insight. And I, my, my mental image of where we were on that story uh, was obviously a little bit dated. Um, Kathleen? Uh, congratulations again on the new program and very quickly uh, tell the audience uh, why it's so important and what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, thank you. Um, I have joined CSIS as the director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative. And the, the starting point for us is that people are policy. And to in, in order to have the kind of national security, foreign policy, international relations, culture that we want to see, if we want to be able to come up with the kinds of creative solutions that we need to have when it comes to uh, strategic competition, we need to make sure that we have uh, inclusive, representative uh, teams that are, that are able to bring their best selves to the decision-making table. So 
we are, we, we have a, a high level uh, speaker series um, that we, we are going to be continuing with. Um, I'm running a podcast that is going to be teasing out the extent to which um, having gender differentiation at the decision making table um, actually affects uh, decision outcomes. And if so, why? If not, why? But again, we're, we're, we're trying to tease all this out so that we can understand how to make our organizations and how to make this organizational culture in this world of national security more effective so that we can meet today's and tomorrow's challenges. Kathleen, we wish you fair winds following seas. Can't wait to have you back on to have a deeper conversation uh, on, on those uh, issues. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you all have a terrific weekend, a great week, uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.